of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It's a grand title, isn't it? Just a bunch of scientists, really. Um, important scientists, though. And uh, the CEO of the association gave a speech to all of those assembled scientists opening the major session of the, of the association's meeting, uh, all focused on world poverty. Ten preschool children die from hunger and malnutrition every minute around the clock around the world. And so science and scientists have a really important role in addressing that sort of poverty. And so the scientists gathered and the CEO gave his speech um, opening this, encouraging the scientists in their task. But there was outrage when at the end of his speech the CEO left in the longest stretch limousine you'd, you'd ever see except for the Oscars. There was outrage. Not particularly impressive leadership. You see, each one of us knows and appreciates, I'm sure, the power of example when it comes to leadership. A good leader doesn't just uh, say, do as I say. A good leader also says, do as I do. And that's important to appreciate as we open up 1 Corinthians chapter 9 together tonight. Because at first glance, it may appear that, as Paul was reading for us, the Apostle Paul has made this radical shift in direction from what we looked at last week in chapter 8. Remember last week he was, he was answering their question about food sacrificed to idols. Do we eat it or don't we? But this week he seems to spend most of the chapter talking about himself, barely a mention of idols and food. What's going on? What we need to realise is, is that although we're taking three weeks to look at them, chapters 8, 9 and 10 are really a unit the whole thing, the whole three chapters are Paul's answer. In fact, if you glanced across at chapter 10, you'd notice those same words start popping up again. Um, idols and idolatry and food and markets and eating. Chapter 9, our chapter tonight, is in the middle of Paul answering the Corinthians' questions about food sacrificed to idols. So why is it all about him? Well, it's because the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to do more than just do as he says. He wants them to do as he does. And that's pretty much where he ended in chapter 8 last week, didn't he? In verse 13. See it there? Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. See, Paul's not afraid to use himself as an example of what he teaches. And in fact, if we glance ahead to uh, chapter 11 and verse 1, which is really the very last sentence in this unit, this answer, chapter 11, verse 1. We read this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In many ways, that's really one of the key verses to this whole section, chapters 8, 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to follow his example. But in following him, they are following the Lord Jesus himself. And of course, as we saw last week in chapter 8, for Christ Jesus and so for the Apostle Paul... Um, Love is the most excellent way. Love determines our choices. Love that builds up, remember. Love that works for the good of the other. And Paul is saying love will even mean sacrificing our freedom to eat whatever food we choose to eat. Love will do that, but love is in fact even bigger than that. It's more than food. And so in chapter 9, Paul continues to spell out for the Corinthians and for us as we read over their shoulder 
the way of love. What is this way of love that Paul's describing? Well, as we read chapter 8, we discover stunningly, shockingly, the way of love is nothing less than the way of slavery. Well, if you grab your outline, which is on the inside of the bulletin, you'll see we've divided the passage up into three blocks and we're going to work our way through it. I'm hoping the outline will help us as we go through it. Let's pray, though, and ask for God's help as uh, we dive into his word to us. And it'd be good to have 1 Corinthians 9, of course, open in front of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for inspiring him to write your word. We thank you, Father, for the example that he is to us. Most especially, Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us more of this way of love, this most excellent way. Change us where we need to be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, point one in your outline, let's have a look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul's starting point in setting out the way of love is a bit of a strange one, I think. He seems really to start off by boasting of all that's his, boasting of his rights and his freedoms and his authorities as an apostle. And as Aussies, you know, that sort of big nutting yourself sort of troubles us, doesn't it? It just doesn't feel right. But it's a necessary starting point for Paul for at least two reasons. Firstly, it's clear that Paul is riding into a situation in which his credentials, his authority is being questioned and challenged. We noticed that last year, didn't we, when we, way back when we began working our way through 1 Corinthians, especially in the first four chapters. Paul's ministry style was a bit weak, a bit simple, a bit too sort of plain for the Corinthians. They wanted Paul to be like the so-called wisdom teachers of their day, they, men of eloquence, men of fine splendour, uh, men of sort of pomp and ceremony. They wanted Paul to be like that, but he wasn't. And so people were challenging his authority. They were challenging his teaching. They were undermining him among the very Corinthian church that he had planted. And so he reminds them here, he's an apostle. He saw the Lord Jesus. There may be others, Paul says, who don't count me as an apostle, but you guys, you Corinthians, you must. For, for he brought them the ministry of the gospel. They were converted through his ministry. And so he says he has rights. He has freedoms. He has authority. Check out verse 3. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Kephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? See the point Paul's making? As an apostle, he had the right to be supported by the Corinthian church. He had the right to food and drink. And as he goes on in the verses that follow, I mean, no soldier fights at his own expense, he says. No farmer works a field without expecting to get something from his work. Certainly not the farmers I know. In fact, Paul even goes on to quote the Old Testament scripture to support his claim. Glance down with me, verse 8. Verse 8. Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? 
For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? No, Paul goes on to say. It's about gospel workers. And you can see his conclusion in verse 12. Verse 12, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Yes, is the answer, of course. Absolutely, you see. From their spiritual birth at Paul's hand, from a human point of view, from the law of Moses, Paul was absolutely entitled to support from the Corinthians when he was among them. He was absolutely entitled to receive food and drink and money from them. He was absolutely entitled to receive a material harvest from them. There can be no argument with that. Paul's logic is irrefutable. The evidence is undeniable. All of which... rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Isn't that stunning? Is that stunning? Paul has taken 12 verses to carefully and methodically assert his rights and his freedoms as an apostle. Why has he done it? <coughs> Just so as to make the point very clearly that he gave up every single one of those rights and freedoms. He didn't use any of them. He gave up his right to food and drink and money and shelter. He relinquished his right to a material harvest. He surrendered them. Why? It's such a radical and strange thing. Why? What's his reason? It's there in verse 12. He said, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul gave up his right to food and drink and money and shelter. He gave them up, he says, because he would put up with anything, anything, rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, that sort of sentiment that's on our page there, and I'm reading to you, that should stir our hearts. It should stir our hearts. These are the words of someone, these are the passions of someone who loves Jesus loves his gospel. These are the passions of someone who has willingly made himself a slave to Christ and a slave to his gospel. He would put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He would do whatever it took to see the gospel advance. You could check out Acts chapter 18 and you'd read there Luke's account of Paul's first visit to Corinth. He met an Italian Jew in Corinth whose name was Aquila and he and his wife were tent makers and that was Paul's trade too and so he stayed with them and he worked with them. He earned his own keep. Why? Because he didn't want to hinder the gospel. Because Paul understood that in Corinth if he, if he were to accept material help, money, it would hinder the gospel. Because, you see, he didn't want to be confused with those so-called wisdom teachers I've already mentioned, those trained, eloquent speakers. Those guys actually received money from wealthy sponsors, wealthy benefactors, and in return, whenever they gave a speech, they flattered and they boasted of their sponsors. 
It was classic cash for comment, first century style. Absolutely, exactly the same. And you see, Paul was determined to be different from that because the gospel shaped his life and ministry. He took no support because he was convinced that if he did in Corinth, the gospel would be hindered. And that's the key point here. Paul's slavery to Christ and his slavery to the gospel determined his choices. It's interesting, you know, that in other cities, other towns, Paul did accept support. He did accept money and food and shelter. But not in Corinth. Because in Corinth, it would have gotten in the way. And Paul was nothing if not a slave to Christ and his gospel. Listen in verse 15 as he describes his willing, joyful slavery. Verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. You know, there was a particular day, the most important day in the Apostle's life. It was the day when he met the risen Lord Jesus. It was the day he became a Christian. And it was the day on which the Lord Jesus commissioned Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, people like us. On that day, he was entrusted with a task from his king. And his life was devoted from that day on to obedience to his call. From that day on when he was a slave to Christ and to his gospel. Such a slave, ready for this? Such a slave that he could freely surrender any rights, any freedoms he might have had. For you see, they meant nothing to him. They meant nothing to him compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. What about us, though? I mean, we're not apostles. We haven't met the Lord Jesus in the same way that Paul did. We haven't received the same commissioning as Paul did. What about us? Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example. Friends, we live in an age obsessed by rights, don't we? It's my right to do that. It's my right not to have to do that. Freedom is so important to us. But by freedom, we mean the freedom to serve ourselves and our own interests. That's what we mean. We mean the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whoever we want. And whenever that freedom is threatened or intruded on, we tend to get very narky. This is my time. This is my space. This is my life. But of course, that's not freedom at all. That's nothing but slavery. Slavery to yourself. Slavery to selfishness. That's all that is. Can I say there's nothing intrinsically wrong with slavery? We think there is because that's what our world tells us. But slavery is not to be feared. In fact, as a human person, we are always a slave. What is to be feared, what is to be feared though, is who you are a slave to. That's what we must fear. 
God's very clear in the Bible. We're all slaves. By nature, we are slaves to sin and death and the devil. Terrible masters indeed. But in Christ, in Christ we have been set free from such terrible slavery and such terrible slave masters. And we have been bought by Christ. We have been redeemed. We have been ransomed so that now, now we can enjoy the true freedom of being his slaves. For we have been set free to become slaves of Christ, which of course is life. For he is a wonderful master who loves us and understands us completely and gives us everything we need. That's why in the Bible, slavery to Christ is freedom. And yet so often we get drawn back into the values of our world, don't we? Back into the very slavery we've been rescued from. And suddenly it's all about me again. And all about my rights. And all about me being comfortable. And all about what I can do. And my freedoms. What works for me. What suits me. But for the Apostle Paul... It was all about Christ and his gospel. Christ, who by rights should never have left heaven, should he? And yet instead, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, a slave. We just sung of it from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus didn't stand on his rights. If he had, he would never have left the Father's side. He would never have taken on our frail, weak flesh. He would never have allowed himself to be ignored or ridiculed or treated with contempt. He would never have allowed himself to be misunderstood or pitied. He would never have allowed such arrogant and ignorant questioning of what he had taught. He's the son of God. He has the right to be worshipped and obeyed. He has the right to be served. And yet he put aside that right. He chose not to be served, but to serve. In fact, he chose to give up his life as a ransom for many. He allowed himself to endure a pathetic, dishonourable, accursed, painful death so as to save weak, disobedient people like you and me. Brothers and sisters, it's very hard to claim your rights when your king is Jesus very hard to overlook the needs of others when your king is Jesus. Love will mark us out. Or it ought to. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ. For the way of love is the way of slavery. We are to be slaves of Christ, slaves to his gospel. We are to say with the Apostle Paul, I will put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. In our church family, in your household, in your workplace, in your friendships, on the sporting field, in the shopping queue, can you say, can you say tonight, I will put up with anything, anything, rather than hinder the gospel of Christ? That's a good question to ponder, isn't it? And there are important principles lurking in our passage too for those of us who reap a material harvest from gospel work, the ones that Paul calls oxen. Sadly, you know, much gospel ministry 
has been overtaken by career paths and professionalism and earning capacity. But at its heart, gospel ministry has always got to be about slavery. And like the Apostle Paul, you see, the gospel worker must always be avoiding anything that might hinder the gospel. And that might mean accepting no money. That might mean accepting less money. That might mean accepting more money. But the issue will always be advancing the gospel of Christ. And it's the same, of course, for those of us who benefit from gospel ministry, those of us who support gospel ministry. The gospel must never be hindered, and it is a terrible and damning thing when gospel ministry grinds to a halt because of lack of funds, because our fists are closed so tightly around our cash and our possessions while gospel workers throughout the world go hungry. The issue is always slavery. Slavery to Christ. Slavery to his gospel. And of course, such slavery inevitably results in slavery to people. And that's where Paul turns next. Verse 19. Verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. There's another great statement, isn't it? It's a chapter full of them. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To our world, of course, that sort of sentiment just sounds pathetic and foolish. A slave to everyone? You've got to be kidding. But of course, it's not foolish and pathetic according to God's wisdom. It's the way of love. It's important, of course, to note that what Paul's goal is here in his slavery, it's there in verse 19, it wasn't just slavery for slavery's sake. You know, he liked getting beaten up or something. It had a purpose. It was salvation. Paul wanted to see people saved. He wanted to see people saved so badly that he would make, them, make himself their slaves, their servants. Paul had determined to do whatever he could, whenever he could, wherever he could, to see whoever he could saved. And so in verse 20 he tells us, to the Jews he became like a Jew. In other words, when he was with Jews, he did Jewish things. He did things so as not to offend them. He kept their food laws, their feasts, their ceremonies. Now, of course, Paul was a Jew by birth. In fact, in another place he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a zealous law keeper. But that day he met Jesus, everything changed that day. Because that was the day he met the one who had fulfilled the law, who had brought the law to an end. And so from that day on, he was free to taste bacon for the first time in his life. Imagine that. Bacon and eggs for breakfast every day. Ham and pork for Christmas. Beef and bacon burger and Maccas whenever he wanted. He was free. But you see, when he was with Jews, no more bacon, just kosher food. He ate what Jews ate, and he didn't eat what Jews didn't eat. Did he have to do that? No. But he willingly chose to do it because he was willing to be their slave. Remember verse 12? He would put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He would do whatever it took to see Jews saved. But not just Jews, Gentiles too. Among the Gentiles, he says, 
among those not having the law, people like us mostly, I would think, he says he became like them. He ate the bacon again. There were some things he didn't do, of course. He wouldn't willingly sin so as to fit in with whoever he was with. That would be ridiculous. His ultimate slavery was not to them, but to Christ. He was very flexible, but he was never flexible about his loyalty to Jesus. And so in verse 21, he says, he describes it as being under the law of Christ. But you see, as a slave to Christ and his gospel, he became a slave to Gentiles as well as to Jews, so as to win them to Jesus. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. Now, if you've got your thinking cap on, verse 22 should have a flashing light next to it. I wonder if you can spot the flashing light. You see, by referring to the weak, Paul is now directly touching back down on the whole food eating, uh, eating food sorry, sacrifice to idols thing of chapter 8. Remember last time in chapter 8? The weak were the new Christians, those still vulnerable to idolatry and therefore to food sacrifice to idols. The weak were those that the strong, the so-called strong ones of the Corinthian church, they were pressing them to eat, to eat that food sacrificed to idols. But Paul says, the strong are wrong. The way of slavery, the way of Christ is where they should go, which is exactly the opposite. To the weak, you see, Paul would become weak so as to win the weak. In fact, verse 22 there is pretty much exactly the same as that last verse of chapter 8 I read a few moments ago. He would give up eating meat if it would cause his brother to stumble. He'd never eat meat again. That's the way of slavery, you see. That's the way of love. Check out Paul's summary there at the end of verse 22. Verse 22, Paul says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Friends, there is the person committed to Jesus, committed to his gospel, and committed to seeing people saved by that gospel. And I reckon it's inspiring. Does it inspire you? And I guess as I read this passage, I, I ask myself, even now, could I really say that of me? Am I really willing to become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some? Am I willing to do whatever it takes, give up whatever I need to give up, do whatever I need to do in order to help each and every person in this church family continue to abide in Jesus? Am I willing to do that? Not just the people I like, but the people I don't like. Not just the people who like me, but the people who don't like me. Am I willing to be their slave because I'm a slave of Christ and his gospel? See, when I hear about a women's breakfast organised or a bloke's retreat or, or whatever, is my decision about whether I'm going to go to that event, is that based on how I can serve my brothers and sisters? Or is it about me? It's not really my thing, so I'm not going to go. But not just within this church family, of course. There is a world of people out there starting from over the street and extending all the way around the globe of people who have yet to come to Christ. Am I willing to become all things to them so that by all possible means I might save some? Am I willing to do whatever it takes, give up whatever I need to give up, 
do whatever I need to do in order to help as many people as I can out there come to Jesus and remain in Jesus. Am I? Am I willing to give up my money? Am I willing to give up my possessions? Am I willing to give up my career path? Am I willing to give up my comfortable house in the comfortable part of town? Am I willing to give them up in order to see people saved? For the Apostle Paul, the answer was, you bet. Absolutely, yes. And Paul says, to us as evening church, imitate me, won't you? As I imitate Christ. But come on, Paul, it's so costly. Think of all you're asking me to give up. Think of the risks involved here. Can you really ask for so much? How could you give up so much? The Apostle's answer is verse 23. 23. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Brothers and sisters, I've got to tell you that according to the Apostle Paul, what he's describing in our passage is not some sort of extraordinary, spectacular, higher plane Christianity that only some people reach. Not at all. For Paul, he can't imagine any other way to live as a Christian than how he's describing in chapter 9. For him, it's just garden variety Christianity. What Paul is describing as the way of slavery is the way it is for all Christians because it's slavery to Christ and slavery to the gospel. He does it all for the sake of the gospel. And Paul, you know, he would disagree that such a life is too costly. Paul would disagree that he's asking us to give up too much. For he does it all, he says, to share in the gospel, to share in its blessings. The blessings of life with Christ and his people forever. Too costly? Too hard? No. Compared with sharing in the gospel and its blessings, compared with a well done from our King, the Lord Jesus, never too hard. Never too costly. But of course, although it's not too hard, it is hard. And although it's not too costly, it is costly. And Paul's a realist, he acknowledges that. But still he invites us to join him in his slavery. Point three and verse 24. Let me read verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. I reckon it's really cool how they organise the Commonwealth Games around my Bible teaching series. <laughs> it's just perfect timing. And I don't know, but for, for me, I always think, oh, I'm not that interested in the games, but as soon as they're on, I can't get enough of them. And I'm watching it, and I'm reading about it, and the television and the radio, and all, all the time we keep being told and shown, don't we, about the sacrifices and the discipline of the athletes that we're watching. Hours in a pool every morning, every, every afternoon. Hours practicing and practicing. Pounding out the kilometres day after day. Discipline. Sacrifice. That's the way of every athlete competing in the Commonwealth Games. Except maybe the lawn bowls. I'm not sure about them pounding out the kilometres. <laughs> that's the way it is for every athlete competing in the Commonwealth Games. And you know what? That was the way of every athlete that competed in Olympia which was a city just to the south of Corinth. And Paul says, 
That should be our way too. That should be our way too. For slavery to Christ and slavery to his gospel, it is hard. It is costly. And so Paul says, we need to go into strict training. Discipline and sacrifice will mark us out as we consistently work hard at saying no to me, no to self-service, and yes to the service of others. Because you see, friends, the way of slavery does not come instinctively to us, does it? Instinctively, we pursue what's best for us. Instinctively, we pursue our own comfort. Instinctively, we look to be served rather than to serve. Paul understood that. He was a sinner just like you and me. Paul understood it, but he never rested in it. He never allowed that to be an excuse. Look at how he describes his own training in verse 27. Verse 27 there, he said he beats his body and makes it his slave. He won't tolerate self-indulgence in himself. He disciplines himself. Why? What's there in verse 26? Because he doesn't want to run aimlessly. He doesn't want to be like a boxer continuously throwing air punches but never actually hitting anything. He doesn't want to be useless. He wants to be a slave of Christ. He wants to be a slave of the gospel of Christ. He wants to be a slave of the people of Christ. And he does it all for the sake of the gospel so that he might share in its blessings. And he calls on us to come and join him. Join in the training. He invites us tonight to throw off our self-indulgence to throw off this attitude that it's all about me, to throw off the attitude that I need to be served before I can contribute anything. He wants us to join him in the way of Christ, in the way of love. He wants us to join him tonight in the single-minded determination to put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He wants us to join him in becoming all things to all people so that by all possible means... We might save some. He wants us to run with purpose. He wants us to have our eyes fixed on the finishing line. He wants us to run for the prize of the crown, he says, that will last forever. An Australian mum today won the marathon. She ran for well over two hours. Her determination was tested right to the end by a Kenyan competitor as they came in together into the stadium and I'm told that you know by then your energy reserves are gone and it's all down to willpower really there's nothing left and she crossed first and then we watched as she stepped up onto the dice uh, onto that number one and um, Steve Monaghetti with tears puts the puts the gold medal around her and she's tearing and everyone's cheering and then We watch the Australian flag go up and the crowd is all singing, thousands and thousands of people singing Advance Australia Fair and cheering. It was very moving, incredibly moving. But you know what? I can't remember her name. And I'm pretty sure that in a week's time, I will have even forgotten what happened. For her, it'll last longer, I'm sure. She'll carry the sound of those cheering for many, many years to come but not forever. Paul says, for us, we get to the end. We cross that finishing line. And the the prize that we receive, the crown, it lasts forever. The glory never fades. The cheering never fades. With Christ, forever. 
imitate me, he says, as I imitate Christ. So what do you think? Are you ready to give up beating the air? Are you ready to give up running aimlessly? Take a moment just to look around this room. Just sneak a look. Look around this room. Here are your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Are you, ready to, are you ready to put aside your own needs and lay down your life for them? Are you ready to do whatever it takes so as to help them to grow as Christians? And consider all those of our worlds who are yet to be saved, people for whom Christ died. Are you ready to serve them, to see them saved? Do you not know that in a, run, a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Father, please help us to imitate the Apostle as he imitates the Lord Jesus. Father, forgive us for so easily surrendering into self-indulgence and a slavery to ourselves. We are so grateful, Father, that you've rescued us and brought us to Jesus and set us free to be his slaves. And so sorry, Father, that we drift off the tracks so easily, start to run aimlessly, start to beat the air. Father, fill us with love, please. Fill us with love for people, that we would willingly do whatever it takes to see them come to know Jesus and remain in Jesus. And that we'd never be so foolish, Father, so selfish, as to put our own needs in front of the needs of others. Father, please, for each and every one of us tonight, by your spirit, please convict us of perhaps just one area, one thing that we could be doing differently and give us the courage to do it. Make us generous with our time, with our money, with our possessions, with our households. Make us less selfish, please, Father. Help us to look to the needs of others. Make us love Jesus. Fill us with his mind, please. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I know we sung it last week, but uh, as a song, it fits, it's almost taken out of this.